Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into the mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. We're doing the work we need to heal self and world at the same time. But what does that have to do with UFOs? Well, there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in our culture's bad philosophies, and contemplating some of them can help us to free ourselves from our culture's bad philosophies and put us on a path to real liberation. I don't know how many philosophers have taken a serious look at the UFO literature, but I would guess very, very few of them have done any solid work on it. I'm the only philosopher I know of personally, who actually included UFO literature in their doctoral research. Once upon a time, I might have written off experiences of this kind as hallucinations, maybe sleep paralysis, or any number of other reductionist notions. It's easy to come up with, with ways to write these experiences off until you start looking into them further. And eventually, it it became clear to me that many of us, many of us would benefit from a careful consideration of this incredible set of phenomena. So it doesn't matter if you're skeptical, it's still really, really interesting. Any good scientist says, well, we have to actually come up with a real explanation for something, and we don't have one yet. And uh, if you are unfamiliar with it, or even if it just has never really piqued your interest before, there is something important here. And we won't go into details of encounter experiences this time around. That's fascinating, and it is important to consider those details because there are a lot of things that that most people probably do not know that we can find in, in these accounts, elements that are not necessarily consistent across all of them but are consistent in many cases. So that's part of what's interesting is you have a, a variety of different kinds of experiences, and when you look at the details they're quite provocative. And uh, so it's worth doing. We might do that in another contemplation. But our focus is on the nature of these experiences in a way you could say. What is, what is it that they imply for our lives and for uh, our sense of reality? And we're following the thread of the last few episodes to think about how a deep-seated fear can keep us from seeing reality. Let's begin with a book written by Whitley Strieber and Jeffrey Kripal, a book called The Supernatural. Strieber wrote a watershed book on the abduction experience called Communion, and that was published back in 1987. And Kripal is a serious scholar of religion at Rice University in Houston. Kripal's career as a scholar shines through with his opening words for this book he co-wrote with Strieber. He writes, quote, I am afraid of this book. End quote. Now that's a great opening line. <laughs> I would love it if more philosophers could write something like that and mean it maybe in the same way. Well, why? Why would a serious scholar feel afraid of his own book? As a first level of answer, we could attribute his fear 
to the sorts of things we have already considered in this series of contemplations, that the content seems to evoke a bit of fear and trembling to turn toward the possibility that the world is already a supernatural world. You can hear me pausing there. I'm not practicing diction. Rather, Kripal invites us to reject the term supernatural, where supernatural is one word. That's how we normally hear it, or see it, or read it. We talk about the supernatural. But Kripal, in the title of this book and throughout the book, uses two words, super and natural. It means nature is already super. The book's title, The Supernatural, gets at our encounter with the superness of nature, which can seem alien to us. To call something supernatural in the habitual sense merely repeats the duality of our limited and limiting thinking. We put, or limited and limiting thought, I would say more technically speaking, we put the natural on one side and the supernatural on the other. We put the rational on one side, the irrational on the other, and on and on it goes. But nature is already wondrous, exceeding all our concepts. And the cosmos can potentially become intelligible without being conceivable. That might seem like a nuanced thing to suggest, but it turns out to have some importance. I think here of the poet William Butler Yeats, for one, because he wrote something delightful in a letter to Elizabeth Pelham in 1939. He wrote, quote, when I try to put it all into a phrase, I say, man can embody truth, but he cannot know it. I must embody it in the completion of my life. The abstract is not life, and everywhere draws out its contradictions. You can refute Hegel, but not the saint or the song of sixpence. It's a really cute little set of lines. You can refute Hegel, or you can refute Marx, or you can refute Adam Smith, or you can refute whatever you want to put in there. But you can't refute the saint. Their life is their completion, or the song of sixpence, which is this sense... Uh, I, that, I mean, that's a very poetic thing to say. Not the saint or the song of sixpence. Why? Why that? because of the beauty of life. We can't really refute the beauty of life. It's just there. And the overall implication here, this idea that we can we embody it in the completion of our life, and that's very important. We, we will touch on this again, how there are certain experiences that are not just experiences, but they are consummatory experiences. They're about a completion, a fulfillment, a profound realization. By means of intimate experience, we can understand the living cosmos without knowing it in the manner of ordinary understanding. So there's understanding and there's understanding, and this understanding involves non-dualistic knowing. And we're not just making up crazy words here. I really mean this seriously. I, I use this word understanding 
to try to get us to notice something that ordinarily when we know something, we make ourselves into a knower and we make something else into an object that we know. And we thereby create a gap between knowledge and the whole cosmos. And th this has been n understood by many philosophers in the dominant culture tradition. Th this gap, Kant made it uncrossable. And you might not know any of these names, Hegel, Kant, whoever, it doesn't matter. The point is that the way we habitually act, we create a distance between ourselves and the rest of the cosmos because the cosmos won't abide this gap between our ideas and reality. It won't be turned into an object. The cosmos isn't an object. It's more like a celebration or a sacred love affair that we co-discover and co-create. And of course, those we love and all our relations who share this living, loving world with us, they aren't objects. But knowledge in the habitual mode turns everything into an object when we try to know it and creates a mirage of distance in place of the imminent intimacy of the grand cosmic love affair. To enter life that engages a sensitivity and responsiveness in mutuality. And this arises as intelligible and inconceivable at the same time. See, the inconceivable part means that we can't, we can't put a concept on, on top of the world that will capture it. No concept will capture the world, but somehow we can still have a deep insight into reality. It just will exceed all our concepts. It's sort of like when we do love someone and we suddenly realize, oh, this experience that I'm having, it far outstrips the idea that I thought love was. And now, of course, we allow the idea of love, or the concept of love to get a little bit bigger, but we know that the word is not really touching the experience that we're having. And we also then could suspect that we might have yet a further experience or many further experiences of love that would expand our understanding further, our understanding at that point. As it starts to get deeper and deeper and more profound, and as it transforms us, we shift from understanding it to understanding it. And as the cosmos itself evolves and develops, because life is moving, it's developing, evolving, changing, there will always remain more to discover and create in total mutuality. The world is full of mystery. The world exceeds our concepts. The world is super and the world is natural. Whatever we find here is natural, even if we can't explain it. To touch the superness of nature, we need to change the way we think, sense, move, touch, taste, commune, and communicate. And that obviously means a revolution. One of the reasons we prefer relative ignorance has to do with the hardships of revolutions and the burdens of living the life of a true revolutionary or radical. The wisdom traditions, including many indigenous traditions, teach us that we can enter the wonder that already is this world. 
Entering it means mystical participation in a sophisticated and positive sense. Now, we can get freaked out by any mention of mysticism. <laughs> and here we are, I'm using it to frame our further discussion of UFOs. We're coming back to it. We just got to get, got to get a little framework, some philosophical grounding. The term mystical participation has a history, unfortunately, of being associated with unskillful views about the world. But what we mean is that somehow we, can, we not only can participate in the world, but we must. We are already interwoven into the cosmos, and it demands our participation. It's like a sacred responsibility to the being of the world and to all our relations in the vast community of life, that we have a, a deep obligation, a sacred ontological obligation to the cosmos itself and to all these beings. And so that, that obligation extends into the cosmos in ways we can't even fathom, at least from the standpoint of understanding. That's where the understanding comes in. The mystical part means we have to enter this mystery and find out for ourselves no one can tell us how our participation in the world works, and we can't know it as an object. We can only participate. We can't be told how that really works and how it will unfold. But we can, we can still learn, it turns out. The wisdom traditions offer us training protocols to empower our participation in the cosmos in such a way that we cultivate the whole of life onward in creativity and goodwill, in wisdom, love, and beauty. These traditions invite us to become radicals in the sense of returning to our roots. That's what the word radical means. It has to do with the root of something. If our culture were healthy, we could do that work without disrupting the culture itself. But in an unhealthy culture, any entrance into wonder threatens revolution in the culture. The funny thing about this kind of revolution is that it seems revolutionary only from a limited point of view. The magic of the world challenges our ego in the narrow paradigms that drive the dominant culture. And so these are all things that are relevant for us to contemplate and just to hold. And it's okay, you might have to come back to a little bit of that, understanding, understanding, distinction, and these suggestions that we've made. But they are a, 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 a spirit that we want to keep as we consider this book, The Supernatural. Now, in this book, Kripal speaks of an apocalypse of thought. I love that turn of phrase. It's wonderful. An apocalypse of thought. I, you know you're going to be saying this to your friends. I think I'm having an apocalypse of thought. And then you can give Jeff Kripal credit. We've already talked about the meaning of apocalypse. In uh, I think it was our first contemplation in this little series. Strictly speaking, it means a revelation. But it carries the connotation of destruction or the ending of something. Many philosophers have essentially described an apocalypse of thought, or what Jung called a breakthrough of total experience. In an introduction to a collection of 
Essays on Zen, written by D.T. Suzuki, Jung wrote the following, quote, After many years of the hardest practice and the most strenuous demolition of rational understanding, the Zen devotee receives an answer, the only true answer, from nature herself. As one can see for oneself, it is the naturalness of the answer that strikes one most. I I love that little passage about as much as I love Apocalypse of Thought. The Zen devotee, after after years, many years, after many years of the hardest practice and the most strenuous demolition of rational understanding, the Zen devotee receives an answer, the only true answer from nature herself. As one can see for oneself, it is the naturalness of the answer that strikes one the most. He's touching on the supernatural, isn't he? Beautifully. Now, we don't need to demonize rationality here. Let's be careful. This has gotten ridiculous. The evil we face is not too much rationality, but rather the division of the rational and the intuitive, the division of the head from the heart. So we don't need to move from the head to the heart We just need to stop dividing them because they remain divided. And and because of that, we see all sorts of attempts to use rationality, argument, concepts, beliefs, and what we refer to as knowledge in ways that are both helpful and horrible. Even crazy politicians use what they think of as reasoning. And I, I, I don't want to use that term in a loaded way. I know we have to be really careful with words. Let's just say apparently unethical politicians, politicians who seem to have um, views that are highly questionable, who vote for things and support things that seem unethical and maybe even immoral, but certainly at least unethical. Maybe sometimes their behavior is immoral. We could. I, I'm thinking of, there's a recent example of a politician who tried, this is very recent, for, this dates the, this episode, um, a politician, a political candidate, I should say, who tried to use reason to question the theory of, revol- uh, of evolution. And I'm thinking of it, the former football player, Herschel Walker. And he said something like this, well, if we supposedly come from apes, how come there are still apes? And then he even said, think about it. If we supposedly come from apes, how are there still apes? And that seemed to him like an argument. He, he thought he was defeating in some way. And I know he probably was, would, could maybe do a more sophisticated job. But as one comedian replied, that would be like asking, if Honey Nut Cheerios come from original Cheerios, how come we still have original Cheerios? Of course, in making that uh, cute little joke, the comedian really missed the deeper error in reasoning, namely that human and non-human primates share a common ancestor who no longer exists. So the original Cheerios are, in fact, gone. But the point is, human beings, like so many other beings in our world, have a kind of instinct for thinking together. That's maybe one way of putting it. I'm not sure that's the best way, but most of us intuitively seek to offer reasons to each other for our behaviors and our beliefs. And we get tremendously frustrated if people won't give us their reasons. 
you know, if we get fired and they say, well, you know, you're just fired, that, that really is unacceptable to us. We want the reasons. We believe things have to be justified. Now, in the university system and in economic and business realms, we find a good deal of rationality, which often amounts to rationalization when we keep it cut off from our total intelligence. So that is this division of head from heart, and sometimes it's the heart driving it. Keep in mind, sometimes the reason people come up with crazy arguments is that some impulse in the heart is driving them to cling to the views they have. It might be fear. So it's not a separation of the head from the heart that we need there. The person is probably speaking from their heart. For instance, maybe Herschel Walker was speaking from his heart because in his heart he believes that evolution must be a lie. It's not necessarily just in his head. Anyway, this whole duality is part of the problem because the reasons we give for many things often function like Herschel Walker's reasoning about evolution. It can sound like reasoning. Sometimes it does. To him it does. To many of the people listening, it probably did. But in fact, it comes down to rationalization. Rationalization is always best whenever it's... we Look, if we could just call it rationalization, it wouldn't function. <laughs> Sometimes that does happen. We know, we say to ourselves, ah, I'm probably rationalizing. But really the best rationalizations are ones that we just call reasons. We just call them arguments. Here's my argument. Here it is. Here's my evidence. That's a functioning rationalization. We have to be very, very careful. But anyway, all this happens precisely because we have an expectation of reasoning. That's what we, we, we expect from each other. We exchange reasons with each other, and we do want to try to think. And we need critical thinking and skillful reasoning. But genuine and skillful reasoning has a connection to life and doesn't try to hide in abstractions, repressions, reactivity, doublespeak, and the gamut of cognitive biases we've uh, all become so infected by. Somewhere in our psyche, we know that our concepts cannot encompass reality, and so our concepts will inevitably succumb to an apocalypse and in some fashion get reduced to rubble. That very fact can make us all the more defensive. In this regard, we could think back to that passage from Jung and notice how essential it seems to acknowledge and gently hold in our hearts the phrase of his about the true answer from nature herself. We might call that a return to nature, a return to naturalness in some sense. This return to nature is something many great philosophers, sages, priestesses, and shamans would endorse. Even a philosopher like John Dewey would likely endorse that sentiment. And I always think of him as thoroughly committed to common sense. He seems like a plain-talking Midwesterner, you know. Well, he's from Vermont, but plain-talking Vermonter. So there again, we have to be careful what we mean by a demolition of rational understanding, even if that phrase captures something important. And again, we're saying all this because when we, we think about, you know, Kripal even has been attacked for uh, for being anti-science simply because he he related a story that should be impossible from the standpoint of our current science. And why why should why should he be accused of being anti-science? I don't think he is. But I do want to say that we have to be careful about 
simple notions of demolishing rational understanding or moving from the head to the heart. It's not going to help. And I don't think that's what Greipel is uh, suggesting, but he certainly is suggesting that our current conception of what's rational and scientific and natural may have limitations and that we have plenty of evidence for it, including UFO phenomena. Now, in some sense, of course, if you just take the, the plain view that there are unidentified aerial phenomena and that they are ships from another planet, then it's not necessarily uh, too outside the realm in the sense that we could imagine, well, okay, all we have to do is make a new discovery in physics and uh, then we'll have those ships too. But that may not be enough. We have no idea because that's what a paradigm shift is. This is the part where it does feel like an apocalypse because a shift from one paradigm to another means a shift into thoughts that would have seemed irrational from the paradigm you started out in. And that's really important. It's it's so easy to overlook that. That there are things that a person as a quantum physicist or someone post-relativity theory, post-quantum theory, there are things that those people believe as rational and scientific that would have seemed irrational, impossible, absurd to a Newtonian. And that's really central thing. And that's that's why we're approaching this idea as an apocalypse of thought and as UFOs representing that possibility for us. And so we're moving carefully. I know maybe it's a little too careful. <laughs> you want to dive in to more. We're going to get back to Kripal. I just wanted to touch on this because, you see, the point of bringing in Jung is to say this is a deeply psychological or spiritual issue that UFOs represent that. He was interested, Jung was interested in them. For him, especially, he thought it was amazing that everyone was having a vision of a mandala in the sky, essentially a circle, which for him was like an image of the self. So he thought there was deep something deeply psychic involved there. And we could say that Jung himself seems to have seen our psychological maturation, real individuation, real maturity, as a matter of an apocalypse of thought, somehow or other. Even if at the same time he thought most people in the dominant culture simply couldn't handle Zen training. In that essay he says, look, I've, I've, I've had so many Westerners as patients, I think I can tell you pretty definitively that they're not be able to, they won't handle Zen training well. It's not going to happen. Now, obviously Zen has made some inroads. Arguably, it's been watered down. Who knows? It's very hard to tell. If you read the Zen literature, you find people complaining all the time, like the move from China to Japan. Everybody, you know, was complaining that Zen had been watered down from the uh, motherland. And then maybe people would say, well, the movement from India to China also involved watering down. It also involved a lot of fertilization. And I think that's happened here on Turtle Island as well. But maybe we've, we've lost something, and we aren't willing to go through the apocalypse and maybe for the reasons uh, Jung sensed, because he looked at a lot of Western psyches and he said, we're just too neurotic for this. So if you look at what has happened in some Zen organizations, you might suspect he was right. But it's not like crazy things have never happened in any other spiritual ecologies. So we could talk about that another time, and I do think it's worth talking about. But again, we're just 
considering that an apocalypse of thought is, in one sense, something the wisdom traditions expect for us. And on the other hand, it's something that can frighten us, and so we do a lot to avoid it. And one of the things we do to avoid it is make a big effort to move toward it. That's one of our favorite things to do. Isn't that delightful? So here we go, back to Jeff Kripal. In his own book, he wrote the words, I am afraid of this book. And then he goes on to write, there is something about it, something explosive and new. It is not a neutral book. It is an apocalypse of thought waiting for you, the reader, to actualize. Well, I can think of a lot of books like that in the spiritual traditions of the world with most of them, maybe all of them, we, we couldn't possibly experience an apocalypse of thought without a context for that apocalypse. We have to be engaged in a holistic philosophy of life, a, ph- a holistic philosophical practice of life, really. And so there's a way in which I disagree with Jeff a little bit. I disagree with him that uh, the reader will easily actualize it with no guidance. I don't think you'll read that book and have an apocalypse, although you really might say, if this is true, it changes everything. And that's important. And I could land, and you could say, this really, it needs to change everything, even though I'm not sure how how to move forward. And the other thing is, I don't think there's that, it, it's not more explosive or new than anything in any other of the most precious spiritual uh, teachings in the, in the world. It just certainly does have that special element to it, though, doesn't it? Because of... We, this contemplation of maybe beings from other worlds, but that's an old contemplation. If you read the Avatamsaka Sutra, for instance, you've got beings from all kinds of world systems. They're all over the place. Uh, Probably most of them are, maybe they were all envisioned as humanoid. Uh, That's a little bit of a limitation, but an infinite cosmos with beings and worlds, intelligent beings, um, and other dimensions and so on, all of that's already been envisioned. These are not new things. There is something, though, for us that seems a little bit edgy. There's like an extra edge. Maybe it's because of our technological development. At any rate, I think we could at least encourage each other, my friends. I think we can encourage each other to try to experience this apocalypse or receive it as a possibility, this revelation of reality that far too many people keep hiding from. Sometimes people hide in corporate jobs they know don't really help the world. Sometimes people hide in ayahuasca ceremonies, yoga studios, Zen centers, and churches. Sometimes people hide from reality both in ayahuasca ceremonies and the corporate jobs they return to after the singing stops. Or they hide in the Zen center and in their failed relationships. Or they hide in their church and in their politics. We need to practice compassion for ourselves and for each other and for the world that needs us to experience a greater apocalypse of mind and reality than we have so far experienced. And that just means almost every last one of us has further to go. We have more ignorance to dispel, more insight and healing to receive and to give. And that sounds nice, doesn't it? We each have more insight and more inspiration to gift to the world. 
Kripal goes on with words that could serve as a reminder for our contemplations here together, really all of them. He writes, quote, The world will not really end as you turn these pages, of course, end quote. Will the world end while you listen, dear listener? And why is he talking about the end of the world? The world, in some literal sense, will obviously not end, but the world of delusion we have entangled ourselves in could end as could the conditions of life upon which we all depend. Kind of gives some seriousness, doesn't it? The sun depends on us to help it across the sky. We have to come out of our cave to do that work. Continuing with his preface, which again could serve as a preface to many of our contemplations of dangerous wisdom together, Kripal says that his and Strieber's book explores, quote, the proposal that we are all embedded in a much larger, fiercely alive and richly conscious reality that is only, at best, indirectly addressed by everything that the human species has ever thought or believed. That feels like quite a big claim for a reputable and careful scholar. On the one hand, I take it seriously because he is an intelligent, well-read, and serious scholar. On the other hand, it's possible that he goes a little too far here again, because uh, nothing in the book strikes me as vastly more shocking than things I've read from the sages of various traditions, including indigenous traditions. But the book has powerful stuff in it. It's, it's worth reading if you want to read it, and it's at least worth contemplating together a little bit. We're just going to look at some pieces of it. Kripal says the book is an attempt, quote, to understand, to really understand that we are already and always have been living in a supernatural world, that we ourselves are highly evolved prisms or mediums of this super-nature coming into consciousness, and that many of the things that we are constantly told are impossible are in fact not only possible, but also the whispered secrets of what we are, where we are, and why we are here. Okay, that's the end of that little quote. And we're considering Kripal, why read this scholar of religion, because of his collaboration with one of the most well-known authors in the ufology literature. I sought out this literature while doing research into the wide array of anomalous data that indicate our science needs a paradigm shift. It felt pretty strange to me as a serious philosopher, dedicated philosopher in the university, to read UFO literature seriously. I think a lot of people might read it just as rhetoric, you know, and not take it seriously. I, j I never ran across another scholar who read it, but I'm sure there are many. Um, I'd, I'd be surprised if any of them are in philosophy departments. I would think they might be in other departments like sociologists or something might study this as just some kind of social phenomenon. And I would often wonder, you know, how would the typical philosopher read an abduction account how does the typical philosopher, and I mean professors of philosophy, I should say, right? That old distinction that I, I understand why Thoreau said it, that there are nowadays professors of philosophy but not philosophers. 
So how does the typical, typical professor of philosophy read any anomalous data? But especially this kind, you know, and we could ask that of really any professor of any kind. How does a professor of physics read anomalous data? Mostly they write it off, right? Well, the question still in some sense puzzles me a little because we have plenty of anomalous data, including not only some compelling data in the ufology or UFO literature, but also peer-reviewed scientific data on things like precognition, telepathy, remote viewing, other things like that. Most of my colleagues in the university, it seems, know little about these remarkable findings, and those who know about them don't seem stopped in their tracks. And it seems pretty common to just dismiss that kind of data out of hand. Many scientists and philosophers try to limit science itself by declaring that any invitation to leap beyond our limited and limiting notions is a leap beyond the world, a leap beyond rationality or reasonableness, a leap into superstition, that kind of thing. So they use the term supernatural, one word, to indicate a leap into irrationality and superstition. It seems there's some rhetoric around anti-science as well. I'm very critical of science, but it doesn't make me exactly anti-science. I think our science is so limited that it's an emergency situation. But that doesn't mean that I don't read as much science as I can. I want to know what science has to say, what we call science has to say, but we need to evolve that term to, to mean something more mature than it currently means. And we need to make a leap out of the paradigms of dominant culture science. Because again, I do feel it's kind of an emergency situation in a way. Anyone who studies the history of science can understand that the evolution of science depends on leaps out of narrow visions of reality and into broader visions. Now those leaps will seem like leaps into the impossible, at times into the absurd and the frightening. Even experiences related to aliens, and we could put that in quote, aliens, could invite us into the kind of leap we need because they would loosen our paradigms. There's a way in which just clinging to our beliefs is the biggest danger we have, and we could say irrespective of the particular beliefs that we're clinging to. Now, I understand that it seems that if we had very racist views or... um fascist views or something like that, that that would be very dangerous. But if we weren't clinging to them at all, then we might be able to back off at a moment's notice, you know. It would be a lot easier if people weren't rigid in their thinking. Um, we might think if we're clinging to ideas like love and beauty and truth, then maybe that would be all right. But the clinging is still going to create a problem. So I th obviously we need some nuance and discernment. It's just to say that somehow it's equally important just to be able to soften our grip on our own views. Since reality is always going to outstrip them, reality is not a belief, it's not a proposition, it's not a political campaign, it's not a political platform, it's not a particular economic system, that's not what reality is. And so without letting go into some kind of wishy-washy, woo-woo, hippy-dippy, directionless wandering in the world, we somehow benefit just from being able to be more open, more inclusive, 
and being able to turn toward experiences and see what they really are and see what the nature of reality is. And so this kind of thing is like a a thunderbolt, a philosophical thunderbolt that helps to awaken us. And we seem to need to get beyond thinking about these sorts of experiences, UFO experiences, abduction experiences, and so on. We seem to need to get beyond thinking about them as irrational, superstitious, or supernatural in the narrow sense. Because maybe all they do is point to the superness of nature. Now, Whitley Strieber, for his part, he says of these experiences, quote, instead of shunning the darkness, we can face straight into it with an open mind. When we do that, the unknown changes. Fearful things become understandable and a truth is suggested. The enigmatic presence of the human mind winks back from the dark, end quote. That's really nice. It's our own mind winking back at us. I mean, it may not be, I don't know why he had to say human mind. Our, our mind, which is beyond human even. It's super, right? In reflecting on his own experiences and the experiences of others shared with him, Strieber writes, quote, I don't mean to say that it's entirely in the mind, but that the mind might not be entirely in us. In other words, mind might not be entirely confined to the brain. Since the moment I began to apprehend the actual dimensions of the experience in all its wonderful improbability and confusing physicality, I have been dogged by that improbability. I can't get away from it, though, My intellect says that it cannot be true. My life bears witness to its truth. That idea of our our life as the confirmation, right, or the consummation that Yeats mentioned. Strieber brings up an important and significantly disturbing suggestion here. That our mind is not entirely inside our skull. Now, we have a hard time making complete sense of that kind of suggestion, and all our indoctrination in the dominant culture gives us a deeply held and obdurately practiced belief that functions precisely opposite to that suggestion. And we could put it another way. We may need to open up the possibility that the soul itself is our context, our soul is the context of philosophy, politics, economics, and everything else. And we have denuded and degraded the soul, and we've also tried to stuff it inside a skull. Notions like validity, knowledge, science, economics, and politics all have roots in the soul, and sensing this could reorient our practices. Jung tried to directly confront our bad ideas about the soul, yeah, that's maybe that's a lot of what his whole life and career were about. And he wrote that, quote, There are fools who think they have their soul in their pocket. And although we know how to talk big about the soul, the depreciation of everything psychic is a typically Western prejudice. 
If I make use of the concept autonomous psychic complex, my reader immediately comes up with the ready-made prejudice that it is nothing but a psychic complex. How can we be so sure that the soul is nothing but? It is as if we did not know, or else continually forgot, that everything of which we are conscious is an image, and that image is psyche. As I see it, the psyche is a world in which the ego is contained. Maybe there are fishes who believe they contain the sea. We must rid ourselves of this habitual illusion of ours if we wish to consider metaphysical assertions from the standpoint of psychology. A metaphysical assertion of this kind is the idea of the diamond body, the incorruptible breath body which grows in the golden flower or in the field of the square inch. This body is a symbol for a remarkable psychological fact which, precisely because it is objective, first appears in forms dictated by the experience of biological life, that is, as fruit, embryo, child, living body, and so on. This fact could be best expressed by the words, It is not I who live. It lives me. The illusion of the supremacy of consciousness makes us say, I live. Once this illusion is shattered by a recognition of the unconscious, the unconscious will appear as something objective in which the ego is included. Okay, that's two paragraphs there, and Jung has big suggestions in those two paragraphs that resonate with what Whitley Strieber has to say with regard to his UFO, alien, and abduction experiences. Strieber wants us to understand that these experiences take place in the psyche, in some sense, or at least possibly so. I don't know that he thinks all of them do, but that doesn't mean they aren't real. He's not saying they're hallucinations. Sometimes they have very physical effects in the world, and other times they seem to involve a mostly psychic experience, by which I mean we just don't see any obvious physical evidence in the normal sense. So after an alien abduction experience, a person might go out in their backyard and find a large disturbed area as if a spacecraft had landed there. You know, it might be like a little crop circle formation, some broken branches from a tree, uh, marks on the ground as if a heavy object had been there. And so it really seems that what they thought was a dream, I saw something out the window, lights outside the window, and then I felt that I was abducted. He goes out the next morning and says, wait a second, maybe it wasn't a dream. Now, in other cases, physical evidence doesn't exist. For instance, John Mack related the experience of a person who was taken on board an alien craft, had a whole abduction experience. She was grabbed by the aliens, pulled on a craft, and when she returned, she discovered that she had fainted, and the whole experience took place while she was in the arms of the person who caught her when she fainted. So the case remains puzzling because, if it's first of all, it's deep reality for the experiencer. It didn't seem like a dream or a hallucination to that person. And it also didn't seem like a normal fainting spell. 
because most of us, if we've ever fainted, we didn't have the vision that we were taken on board an alien ship. Vivid, real, hyper-real, you know, there it is. This is as real as it's get, as it gets. And uh, that's just not a normal fainting experience. So it doesn't seem explainable merely as a dream or a hallucination. And also, of course, it had features that you would expect from an abduction experience. Well, however we want to think about any particular experience of, of this kind, the sheer number of UFO experiences invites us to quiet down a little and open up to something strange, something befitting the strangeness of our context in this mysterious con- cosmos, with all of its superness. In some sense, super experiences invite us to transcend the divide between the rational and the seemingly irrational potentials of our own experience. Our most serious science tells us we live in a connected cosmos, a totally interwoven and entangled cosmos, a non-local and non-linear cosmos, which includes what we call mind, not as something separate, not as something somehow floating on top, but totally woven. But our intellect tells us this cannot be so, really. Like when we try to think through that image, we say, no, 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 but it's not really like that. Militant scientists you know, and politicians make war on these kinds of ideas. To be quite clear, it might be fair to say Strieber doesn't really write about alien abduction, if we put that in quotes, but rather he writes about what we might call non-ordinary experience or experience that feels extraordinary or super because of the ways it ruptures our habitual sense of reality. Strieber writes, quote, having been the object of their visitations over a period of years and the recipient of hundreds of thousands of narratives from others who had similar experience, hundreds of thousands, I wish to suggest from the outset that this phenomenon is much larger than any of the usual explanations, including alien visitation and such interpretations as brain seizure. It is far richer, more complex, and more ambiguous than we commonly suppose. Gradually, superstitions about everything from seasonal changes to the appearance of diseases and natural disasters and much else gave way to logic and scientific understanding. However, there is one area that remains outside of understanding and which is by far the most culturally potent of them all. It is what we now call the supernatural. It has re-emerged in the form of the alien and UFO stories that abound in our time and threatens to degenerate into a new superstition if it does not receive the study necessary to determine what it actually is. Should we ever come into more general contact with what I encountered, they will not be offering us plans for a starship or a trade in exotic electronics. What will be on offer is a journey into a whole new understanding of reality and the part we play in it. The alien is as much a herald from the dark of the universe as it is a signal from the depths of our own minds. 
the discovery of the reality behind UFO and alien apparitions and the discovery of our own truth will prove to be profoundly intertwined. When this discovery is finally made, we will, at that moment, become immeasurably larger, free at last from the constricted vision that now so limits us we will begin the journey toward which we have been struggling from time immemorial into a new relationship with the universe and a new understanding of mind and the natural world. Okay, that's a juicy quote there. If we can receive this at least as a serious suggestion It's a lot to contemplate, to really chew on and metabolize. If you listened to our last contemplation, you may recall that William James, writing over a century ago, already pointed out that brain seizure and similar explanations were common back then. It's amazing to see it here. (laughs) He, He specifically mentioned brain seizure. It's a convenient way to try and push back at something that some part of us fears. We want to keep it at bay. And as we've touched on many times, it's not so easy to imagine the kind of fear we're talking about here because it's not just life and death, but life and death in the face of something that ruptures our sense of reality. That's really the extra level there. Life and death, sure. I'm sure some of us have had near misses, close calls, oh my gosh, when you think about it, I really could have died there. And maybe even something quite existential. I remember somebody pulled a gun on me once. It wasn't loaded, but it just freaked me out that they pointed a gun right at me. And I didn't know it wasn't loaded. So someone just points a gun at you, you know, whoa, you get an existential experience in that moment. And I was young too. I was I was I was a freshman in high school or sophomore. So you know, I really didn't have any training of mind to know how to handle that. You know, <laughs> and so it was a kind of shock. But this is not just life and death, but rupturing our sense of reality. Artie Clark, who interviewed indigenous people all over the Americas about their experiences with what they sometimes call sky people reported that one woman was so traumatized by her abduction experience that life became miserable for her. In her experience, these beings could pass through walls and they had all kinds of powers and human agency just had no way to stop them. So she kind of felt like life is pointless and, and, and a big illusion. You know, what's the point? These people can come and grab you any time and you've got no, you've no way to stop them. You're powerless. It was just really shattering. Now, that's more extreme as far as a view of the meaning of such an encounter goes. It's kind of nihilistic meaning in a way, but experiencing profound fear and trauma is not uncommon. If you haven't looked into this literature before, it can seem pretty strange, and maybe it seems even stranger, that some experiencers seem sure they encountered literal beings from another world, like it seems to them like as if it's an outer space situation. It's spacemen, it's aliens. But Strieber wants to suggest that that won't cover all the experiences. It doesn't explain all the elements of all the experiences that he has looked at. 
and that he himself has experienced, actually. When I first read the literature, I thought we were either talking about aliens or not. That's why I thought this is just, it's alien abduction, right? So either they're being abducted by aliens, literally, or not. And now I'm just not sure what it all is. Even if I still tend to guess that at least some of these phenomena have to do with actual beings from other parts of the cosmos. But even that is an open door. I don't know what that means, right? Because they could be beings from another dimension of reality. Maybe some of them are dark matter beings or beings who are somehow more evolved and maybe they're not even really using ships. Who knows what's going on here? It's, it's really mysterious. Now, we can try to keep an open mind by saying that Strieber makes his suggestions on the basis of data. And we'll need a separate contemplation of some important general and spiritual aspects of data. But for now, let's think of this kind of data as somewhat special, coming from a more rare perspective than many of us have access to. Um, it's like extraordinary data. So it's not common, but it's particularly potent data as well. And in working with this potent data, Strieber and Kripal try to take a middle way. They suggest that we see this data neither as hallucination nor as literally creatures from outer space. Maybe that's part of it. As I keep saying, it seems like, okay, it's, it's possible. But Strieber writes, quote, despite the fact that I can't explain them, I frequently see and interact with non-physical and quasi-physical beings. They seem to be part of nature just like we are, but in some super way for which we have neither an adequate religious model nor present science. They also have, at least in my life, what has come to seem a rather clear aim. They want to challenge me with questions too provocative to be left unanswered, but which I cannot, in all frankness, answer in anything approaching an objective manner. End quote. At this point, maybe we should pause and ask, why should we bother reading this literature? And let's especially ask, why should we bother reading and contemplating this literature given the scope and variety of problems we currently face in our world? And we've been clearly touching on the why, but point blank, why? Why think about aliens when there's uh, war, famine, and all the rest that we're dealing with? And we're, we've again and again tried to touch that. The importance of turning toward what we're afraid of and not clinging to our views and Whatever is going on here in, in this UFO phenomena, it involves a different way of knowing. And more importantly, it seems an awesome invitation to know differently rather than follow the conquest consciousness impulse of explaining it all away. So we're thinking about it because of its deep implication altogether. It's deep implication about what we are and how afraid we are of turning toward what we are. So the fear is not the real thing. What we are is the real thing. Or you could say the fear is an expression of what we are, but it's, it's in itself just 
it's not what we th- what we think and what we are isn't what we think and if this could be some kind of philosophical thunderbolt maybe it would startle us out of our sleep a little and anything that could get us to loosen up a little could be helpful and maybe there is in this phenomena or this set of phenomena something like a, a revelation and an apocalypse that we need to receive maybe it just it's not to say that it's the keystone or the linchpin maybe it's one thing among many or one gateway among many but maybe all of us could benefit from just looking at it a little bit and letting it soften us and loosen us and open us just a bit remember that sense of wonder just a bit which is the beginning of all love wisdom. Wonder is the ground, the path, and the fruition of true philosophy, true spirituality. And also, this is no small literature. We know how much press this has gotten. Clearly, this is something that is interesting to people. There was a breakthrough New York Times piece a few years back. And Strieber, we can see, is neither crazy nor an isolated case. It's very clear. And when he made his experience public, he started receiving letters from others who reported similar experiences. And this, uh, again, his book Communion was published in 1987. For a time, he was getting 10,000 letters a month, people writing in saying that they had similar experiences and often sharing them. That's why in the previous quote, he said that he's looked at hundreds of thousands of these narratives. He estimates between 1987 and 2000, that he received half a million letters. That's one guy. We shouldn't have to note how astonishing that is, but we do, because most of us, I think, have no idea how widespread these experiences have become. Relative to global population, the numbers might look small. If you think what the percentage is, okay, if if he got half a million letters, then, you know, clearly there are many, many times that um, number of people who had the experience but didn't bother writing a letter, maybe never read his book and didn't even know it was out there. But even if they read the book, they might not have been moved to write a letter. So not everybody um, is is going to be counted there. So we could think that possibly millions of people have had experience like this. And that seems staggering. Even if it seems like a small percentage of the population, something that millions of people have experienced and that it's the kind of experience we're talking about that is UFOs and abductions, that's incredible. It's astonishing. And it would be nice if that could just make us stop for a minute and say, well, geez, what, what is all this then? And what are we doing? Why are we fighting? Why can't we make sure everybody is fed? What is this mystery? Maybe we could turn toward it. And obviously, this is not going to bring peace on earth. I really like that Jeff Kripal wants this book to be an apocalypse realized by us, this book of his. And I'd love this contemplation to be an apocalypse realized by you, dear listener. But it it would be enough if it just nourished us in that direction. That, That would be nice. We're not going to sing Kumbaya just because we recognize there are aliens, but it really could help. And maybe there's something here inviting us, calling us. Now, when Strieber gathered up all the material that he had, and he tried to offer it for study to 
neuroscientists, psychologists, and so on, he said there was, quote, there was not just no scientific interest, but the reaction was often hostile, end quote. So they weren't only uninterested, but they were uh, probably, I could see them being a little insulting, dismissive, whatever it might be. I've seen this in the academy. And perhaps we need to consider how unsurprising that is and how unfortunate. Why the hostility? Why do the metaphysical police feel such a need to dictate what's possible? We see this everywhere, well-intentioned people who want to dictate what's possible. And I understand it because obviously, again, we're a species with an instinct for sharing our reasons behind our beliefs. And we know that bad beliefs cause problems. We, I mean, Hannah Arendt said evil is just a failure to think. There's a way in which that's true. It's also not true in the sense that, uh, I mean, if we're talking about living thinking, yes, it is, it's the end of living thinking. But will there be rationalizations? Sure. So thought is present even if living thinking isn't present uh, in acts of evil because we can't, we, we're not going to just shut our brain down. So we often, the problem is we think we're thinking and we are engaged in the gestures of reasoning with each other. And so there is a way in which she's right. We've, it's a failure of critical thinking, and that's why I guess the metaphysical police do what they do, because they're, they're afraid that somehow people's bad thinking might contribute to an evil in the world. But unfortunately, their own activity is part of the unhelpful, unhealthy aspects of the culture. So it's a kind of evil to, to be metaphysical police, isn't it? Not, not as bad as some things, but, of course, what's so different between uh, some fascist declaring what is possible and what isn't possible, what is right and what isn't, and some scientists declaring it. And uh, I have a lot more uh, confidence in the scientists' findings, but scientists are also philosophers, and they're often very bad ones, who make metaphysical claims without support. So Strieber, I think he does a nice job. He says, quote, most members of the academic, scientific, and intellectual communities, let alone our serious media, have to this day no idea how extensive the experience actually is. And he says, our interest could change only if, quote, the most interesting aspect of the phenomenon, which is its ambiguity, is to replace the either-or debate, end quote. So the either-or is either it's aliens or it's delusion or deceit on the part of these people. And this either-or only expresses the narrowness of our own context and our own perceptions, our beliefs, our, and our imagination, which is quite interesting, that we have difficulty really imagining reality, which is, uh, in one sense, unsurprising, but we also don't know how to use our imagination to activate insight into reality. That's also a difficult problem. What might be here that most of us don't perceive? And there are a lot of ways to ask that. There's a book called Beyond Words by Carl Safina, and that was a book that, when I taught philosophy of mind, students loved that book. And I loved it because it's like it stands in for this whole question of what we're talking about. What might there be? What is the reality that we don't see? And it's everywhere around us. 
And Strieber says, it was, our mind is winking back at us <laughs> from the depths and darkness of the cosmos. And Safina, in his book Beyond Words, shows us that we're surrounded by minds. Everywhere we look, we're surrounded by mind, by mindedness, by mindfulness and sacredness in nature. The sacredness of nature, the mindfulness of nature, the mindedness of nature. You see what I'm saying? That when you look around, you think you see, but what do you see? What do, what do we think we see? A bunch of objects. But the tree has ascensions. The birds have ascensions. We are interwoven in sentience. We are the interwovenness of sentience. The whole fabric of the cosmos is sentience. And if you go outside and really look, you see it everywhere. It's not what is here, it's who is here in a way. So we've cut ourselves off from that, and we don't walk around experiencing ourselves as alive and alive in a womb of sentience, presencing the mystery of a primordial awareness. We're just running our agenda. And so there's a sad irony in all of the projected techno-fantasies we see, both in the ufology literature and in our society in general. We're so closed off to the magic all around us, that the soul can only get some of us to listen by means of these techno-fantasies, which we then take literally. We have this idea that tech can save the world, that aliens have tech that may destroy us or it may help us, it might liberate us if we only had the alien tech and some other people trying to keep us from the tech. And deluded people think they have been taken into an alien spacecraft, that's another part of our techno-fantasy, or writing off the images, right? It all goes together. Whatever we declare, instead of inquiring and contemplating, you understand what I'm trying to get at there? It's obviously possible that there are alien visitors. But even then, we seem to need to accept that each case of seeing lights in the sky or seeing various beings may be unique. Some of these experiences might be the soul speaking, while others might even be aliens speaking, or some mysterious other, every bit as natural as dolphins and jaguars, and perhaps living here with us, as alien as they may seem in our midst. But ultimately, they are all of them both, both the soul speaking and also some new aspect of reality trying to come into our awareness. And that just goes beyond techno-fantasies. It's not alien tech. It's our own nature and the nature of mind and the nature of nature that we need to get to. We don't need the new tech. That's not what's going to save us. It's not that the aliens have a technology and then we'll all have infinite energy and then we can power Walmart with alien spaceship engines, you know. No, it's that there's something we need to see so that we're done with Walmart and we're done with polluting our rivers, and we're done with all the fighting and conflict and aggression, and we're done denying what we really are, and hiding from what we really are, and being afraid of what reality is. And to call us to this, the soul speaks in whatever way it can. And our job is to listen, sense, touch, taste, open, opening even to apparent madness, and that's where it gets scary, and that's where we need training of the mind, so that we don't really go crazy, we don't want 
to run into a spiritual emergency that becomes a psychotic break. We can't relax into the divine madness without some training, because otherwise it becomes a very unhappy situation and an unhealthy one. And maybe there was a time when the soul made use of fairies and sprites. Again, the soul speaks in whatever way it can. There was a time when the soul spoke by means of wolf, and even the spirit of wolf, or through wolf medicine. Once upon a time, we could go out and commune and communicate with wolf, bear, mountain, coyote, and maybe fairy creatures, and who knows what else. The right kind of soul attunement allows for potent experiences, artful, graceful experiences, consummations of our lives. And now the soul is speaking in terms of alien spacecraft. Maybe there also are alien spacecraft, but maybe it's that these are the new fairies. Being abducted by aliens is in some sense the same basic kind of spiritual experience as a shamanic journey, in a certain way. But we lack the proper context, the proper culture, and so the experiences remain virtually wasted in some cases, maybe. Of course, there are many people, and this is what uh, Mac specialized in documenting cases where people really got a lot out of it, became a positive transformation for them, even if at first it might have been traumatic. But in any case, the way Streber wisely puts it, quote, there is a big mystery here. But the first place to look is not to the skies, it's to us. We must look into ourselves. End quote. I really like that. There's a big mystery here, and we're tempted to look at the skies, and we're tempted to think of something far away. But it's not that. It's more intimate than we've ever looked. Now, again, we haven't looked at any particular experiences, really. Sure, we mentioned a couple of them. Nothing detailed. If you want to do that, if you think that's a good idea, get in touch. And if you have some experiences to share, that's good. We can do another contemplation, maybe with stories collected from various sources or ones that you submit. Now, the reason we didn't do that is, again, the details could have distracted us from the most important issue which we try to emphasize in different ways. Streber really nailed it pretty well. But we could also summarize it this way. Nature is super. We have a deep-seated fear of that superness. However, we are totally interwoven with nature. Therefore, we have a deep-seated fear of ourselves and our own superness. When we experience the superness of nature, when we experience things that we might want to write off as supernatural or superstitious or just plain delusional, we have encountered something that calls us into a vaster vision of ourselves, something that calls us into the sometimes fearful journey into mystery. If we can recognize and pacify our fear, and join together in real compassion and care and critical thinking. We may discover that our limited notions of reality were the real delusion. That was the delusion. 
Not the thing we, we, we experienced, but the limited idea we had that said we couldn't experience that thing. That couldn't be it. That can't be real. No one can experience that. That's not possible. That's the delusional thought. And those delusional thoughts present a far greater danger to us and to, to the community of life than anyone proclaiming that they've been abducted by aliens. That's not the problem, that someone thinks that. The problem is that we're so shut down, we won't even talk about it, really. And we won't see what it would mean for us, what, what might be calling us. Now, our fear is natural. We don't have to be ashamed of it. But since much of it remains beneath the surface of consciousness, at least until a direct encounter with the superness of nature, we need to deepen our practice of wisdom, love, and beauty. That will help us not only learn that we can face our fear, but it will help us to actively go to the places that scare us so that we can learn the truth about what we are. That doesn't mean anything reckless or foolish. It means an ethical quest to face our own fears for the benefit of all. If you have questions, reflections, or stories of magic and mystery to share, stories of wisdom and wonder, compassion and courage, creativity and insight, get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org and we might bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.